while the other epistle letter churches or churches that they've written epistles for, um, they have some, some indication of how they came to be in the book of Acts. None of them compare, in my opinion, to Philippians. We have this great account. We have framed this backstory in what in the movie biz is called a prequel or the story before the story. And now we need to begin with what we call a recap because last week we started and this week we're going to continue on. So to catch you up or if you weren't here last week, this is what happened so far. This is in Acts 16. So if you have your Bible, if you don't, cue Bible in front of you, Acts chapter 16. So Paul and his traveling companions, which include Silas and Timothy and Luke, who is writing and narrating this book, had so far traveled all the way from Lystra, where they picked up Timothy, through Asia, where twice God has prevented them from stopping to preach, across the Aegean Sea to the region of Macedonia, following a vision from God to the Roman colony of Philippi. There they met Lydia, brought her and her household to Christ, and baptized them. Then Paul cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl who was following them around, proclaiming they were servants of the Most High God. And they did this, of course, because Most High God could also have been a term applied to Zeus. And in a Roman colony, Paul wanted there to be absolutely zero confusion about who he was there representing, right? Well, this upset the slave girl's owners, who were using that spirit's fortune-telling skills to make a little cash. So they had Paul and Silas arrested, because to them it seemed like maybe Paul was the leader and Silas was there with him. So the leaders of this group, and they were also Jews. So brought before the rulers of Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten. They were thrown in jail. And when we last saw our heroes, they were praying and singing hymns to God at midnight in jail. We left last week on a cliffhanger, as they say. So let's pick up again today with verse 25 for the conclusion of this epic tale, which we know really was the beginning of the church here in Philippi. So with Paul and Silas in jail, it would seem like this missionary journey had come to a screeching halt to come all this way just to get beaten up thrown in jail and not even for really doing anything wrong they saved this poor girl from demon possession but money talks right regardless what we see here from them is another example of the faith of paul and silas extending past their present circumstances just as it had when God changed their plans at the start of this journey. So let's pick up right where we left off last week in verse 25. Verse 25 says this, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now let's not forget that not only are Paul and Silas in prison, but they had also been severely beaten by rods inflicting upon them many blows, Scripture says. And we just talked a little bit about this in our Bible study this morning, about how Jesus was beaten with rods on his head by the guards. But that wasn't the end of their discomfort, was it? 
They didn't get to recline in a soft bed and recover from their injuries, no. They would have been put in typical Roman stocks on their legs, which had more than one pair of holes. And the way that that would have worked is that the prisoner's legs would have been spread wide apart. They would have used this as a form of torture. And given the way that they've treated Paul and Silas so far, perhaps we could assume that maybe they were subjected to this painful practice. This is the state that they were in when they were praying and singing hymns to God. Doesn't that paint the scene in a little bit different light? They weren't just hanging out, sitting on comfortable couches, reclining with grapes, you know. They prayed and they praised God in song. And all the while, the prisoners were listening to them. Notice it doesn't say that the prisoners heard them, but that the prisoners were listening to them. So let's paint a picture. Put yourself for a moment in the place of one of the prisoners in this Philippian prison. Perhaps you see these two beaten, bloody Jews pass by your cell, heading for that secure, innermost part of the prison where they put the really bad guys. Once they're out of sight, perhaps you can hear the the heavy wooden stocks close on their legs and the sounds of the men as they react to the pain of what's happening to them on top of the beatings that they already received. Once the jailer has left the prison and gone back up to his living quarters, there's silence. Maybe that silence lasts for a little while. And you wonder, maybe the prisoners passed out. Maybe they've fallen asleep, although that's unlikely, given that their legs are in the stocks. And then out of the silence, you hear speaking. No, no, not just speaking. Is that, is that praying? That must be those two Jews, but they're not praying to any God that you've ever heard of. Who's, who is Jesus? Did they just say, bless the jailer? Did they just pray for the prisoners? And then the praying stops and this, the singing begins. Not crude prison songs to pass the time, but holy and reverent songs of their God and this, this Jesus, how he is the Messiah and their salvation. They sang of hope and they prayed for deliverance so they could continue the work that their God had brought them to Philippi to do. Imagine the effect that something like that would have had on these men, perhaps hardened criminals, who had no thoughts of hope or salvation. A message like that, though not preached directly to them, would have had a great impact as they listened to these beaten and imprisoned men bless their captors and praise their God in spite of their circumstance. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what Paul and Silas prayed for. They may not have prayed for deliverance at all. They may have just been trusting that God would work it out. But whether an answer to prayer or not, God was about to take some pretty decisive action, as we see here in verse 26, which says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
Paul and Silas's act of worship to God seemingly led to a miraculous event that freed the prisoners from their bonds and opened all of the doors to the prison. Now, I'm not saying that Paul and Silas caused this earthquake or that if they hadn't been praying and singing that it wouldn't have made the earthquake happen anyway, but what we see yet again is faith. Paul and Silas are responding in faith. They don't have any idea what's about to happen. They don't know if there's going to be a resolution to this predicament that they are in. And keep in mind that timeline-wise, scholars think this is probably the first time Paul is ever in jail. And we know from his other letters that Paul spends a lot of time in jail during his ministry. But they think this might be the first time. So this isn't rote for him. This isn't like, meh, what's jail? This is hard for him. And yet he praises But this earthquake comes, all the doors open, all the bonds are loosed, not just on Paul and Silas, but the whole prison. And we see God not letting the work of man stand in the way of his plans. Now, let's understand here that while a natural earthquake, a normal everyday earthquake, may do much to shake the foundations of a building even to knock down walls, destroy buildings completely. We've seen the devastation that earthquakes can bring. This was clearly not a natural earthquake. Amen? The Lord is certainly in control of nature. He can do anything he sees fit to do. He is in control. He is sovereign over it. But God does love to use nature in very specific ways, does he not? For example, I think of Jonah being rescued from the depths of the sea by that big fish. After a large storm was brewed up just to chase him just to chase him down, or the Lord making the sun stand still for Joshua, or when he parted the Red Sea for Moses, or when he sent fire down from heaven to consume the offering, the wood, the stones, and even the water for Elijah in his showdown against the prophets of Baal. Or, of course, When Jesus spoke peace to the storm. And here again, we see God using nature in a very specific way to his own ends. And while the earthquake did not destroy the building, it did unlock the prison doors and set all the captives free. Remind you of anything? And this is nothing short of a miracle, to say the least. And it didn't go unnoticed, as we see in verse 27. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this account is the very traditional and brutal Japanese ritual of harakiri. It's a form of ritual suicide which rose to prominence in the 17th and 18th centuries. It was practiced predominantly when a samurai warrior had committed a serious offense or brought shame to his family or else used so that they could die with honor on the battlefield instead of falling into enemy hands. And much like that, this jailer saw that the doors were open, presumed all of his prisoners were gone, not just his regular Compliment of ne'er-do-wells, but 
these Jews that the magistrates had specifically told him to keep secure. And so he was full of shame. What else was he supposed to do? While this Japanese ritual of harakiri was not existing at this time, the jailer still felt that that was his only option. And he also probably figured out that he was a dead man anyway, if what happened in Acts 12.19 was common. And that tells of a time when God miraculously sent an angel to rescue Peter from prison. Do you know that story? And Herod killed the sentries that had been responsible for guarding him. And so if the higher-ups were in the habit of killing those in charge when they lose a prisoner, just one, imagine what would happen if the entire prison emptied out. So perhaps he thought he was better off making quick work of it himself. Perhaps he thought to save his family the shame of having to go through all of that. In a matter of two verses, we see the stark contrast between how people react to trials when they have Christ and how they react when they don't. For Paul and Silas, their response to their incredible trial and hardship was to trust and to praise, knowing that God would see them through no matter what would happen. For the jailer, his response was to kill himself. He was hopeless. His entire life rested solely on his present circumstances. And it's sobering when you think of how rampant this reaction still is to this day for those who don't have or who have lost sight of the hope of Jesus in their lives. Well, regardless of precisely what the jailer was thinking, Scripture makes it pretty clear that he didn't waste much time deciding what to do next. He saw those doors open, right, and he drew his sword. And that is when a voice cried out from the dark. Verse 28 says, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. So from Paul's perspective, maybe still in shock, he could look out through the dust that recent earthquake had caused through the open door. Maybe he could see the jailer as he drew his sword. Somehow he knew what the jailer was going to do. Maybe the Holy Spirit told him what was about to happen. And it could have been an easy thing for him to just say nothing. Just let whatever happened happen, right? But Paul, exemplifying Christ, bondled love, stopped the jailer before he could run himself through, even though this man was his captor. Perhaps Paul and Silas, maybe they knew that this was special. Maybe they knew that the moment the earthquake hit and the doors opened and their bonds fell off, that God was at work. When Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and love our enemies, Paul was putting both of those into action right here. What we don't read is that all of the prisoners escaped except for Paul and Silas. No. What we read is Paul saying that they were all still there. Why didn't any of the other prisoners escape? Was it because they were so enthralled and in awe by the witness of Paul And Silas, by their prayers and their songs in the midst of their pain, by their faithfulness to this God of theirs, 
It's possible. Was it because they were just in shock by what happened? It's not every day that you experience an earthquake and that your bonds are unfastened, that your prison door opens up. I guess that's possible too. Again, it's impossible for us to know why they remained. Scripture doesn't say. But what we do know for sure is that they were all still there. That's what it does say. And that meant that they all heard, and perhaps they even gathered around the scene that took place next. Verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Clearly, he was deeply upset by the thought of the possibility of his prisoners escaping. But even once he found out that they were safe, an unsurprising reaction would have been for him to simply lock them back up. Or even perhaps a, issue a beating or two to scare them into remembering who's boss. Sailors aren't historically known to be super-duper kind-hearted guys, right? At least that's what we know from movies and literature. But this man's reactions were different. Firstly, I find it interesting that he immediately identifies Paul and Silas as responsible in some way for what just happened. Notice the series of events here. Paul calls out, stopping him from killing himself. He gets the light he needs and He sees in probably the pitch dark prison. And then trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas. Then he brings them out and asks this beautiful question. The first thing he did was fall at their feet. Was it possible that this man's living quarters were arranged in such a way so that he was close enough to hear Paul and Silas praying and singing? Clearly the Holy Spirit was already beginning to tug on this man's heart. Who's to say? Again, scripture is our reference. We can only wonder. Whatever reason, though, he realized that Paul and Silas were unique. He'd probably been there for a while, and he'd never had an earthquake like this before. These two Jews show up in (laughs) quite a night. Paul had stopped him from killing himself, and so he came into their open cell and fell at their feet. That must have been an interesting moment for Paul and Silas, their captor in such a a subservient position before them. Scripture doesn't indicate any words being exchanged. They don't say anything. So I can only assume that the jailer realized pretty quickly that he needed to get these men out of there, that they were different and somehow had something to do with what just happened. Not just the opening of the prison doors, but the fact that all the prisoners remained as well and that Paul had stopped him from committing suicide. So he brings them out of their cell, perhaps even out of the prison altogether, to ask a question that has become a staple of evangelism to this day. What must I do to be saved? The desperation of the jailer's question and the simplicity of Paul's answer are such a stunning model of grace Because Paul answers like this in verse 31. 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Verse 32 goes on, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now we touched briefly on the account of Lydia and her household getting baptized, as told earlier in the chapter, and what it meant and what it didn't mean. And again, here is a more detailed account of the specifics where Paul makes the implication of salvation of a household, and then the following verse shows how that came about. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. John B. Polhill states in the New American Commentary, quote, At some point, the jailer's household entered the scene. Again, earthquake. Luke did not specify when. Perhaps the mention of the household triggered the jailer's awareness that Paul and Silas were about to share something his whole family should hear. In any event, all were present when Paul and Silas shared the words of the Lord. Here, Luke made explicit what was implicit in the Lydia story. The whole household heard the gospel proclaimed. There was no proxy faith. The whole family came to a faith in God. And coming from a pagan background, as they did, their newfound faith had a double dimension. Faith in Jesus as Savior and faith in God as the one true God. Unquote. So remember this, guys. It wasn't the miraculous events of the evening that brought the jailer and his family to Christ. Those things only led him to ask a question. It got his brain going. It made him realize that there is more to the world. There is more to life as Stephen Curtis Chapman says, than living and dying. There's more going on here than he knew before. There's something different. These events caused him perhaps to realize that things aren't as they seemed, as he knew all growing up. These miracles didn't save him. It was the word of the Lord spoken to the jailer and his family that led them to put their faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of him and his family's hearts that night. And it changed their lives, and it changed their city forever. And we get to see what happens next. We get to see the celebration that took place, which is so often missing in these accounts, and this is why this one is so special. Verse 33 says, And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Again, notice here, baptism followed belief. Not only that, but now that their once captor is now a brother in Christ, he is filled with compassion for them, and he sees to their wounds. Verse 34 says, He brought them into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's still the middle of the night, you guys. And this jailer brings Paul and Silas into his home and feeds them, and they have this beautiful 4 a.m. salvation party. So just remember that. Next time that you witness to somebody and they accept Christ and you have that wonderful experience, even if it's 1 a.m., you have to bring them back to your house and feed them and say, I'm sorry, honey, it's, this is what the Bible says. Just kidding. But what a, great, what a great example of the joy of the Lord. This guy was so excited. He said, hey, you guys, the Lord just changed my life and our lives. 
And look at this. This is why Philippi and the book of Philippians is so filled with joy. It's moments like this. How neat. Verse 35 goes on to tell the rest of the story. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, well, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now? Throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. I just love this. It shows the difference between meekness and being a wimp. The magistrates had sent word for them to be released. But instead of just accepting it and moving on, Paul knew that he'd been wronged. And he stood up for Silas and himself. And when you look at the evidence that Paul has here against the magistrates, it once again reminds us that he's a very learned man. And last week, remember I mentioned that Philippi was a Roman colony that had afforded citizens all the luxuries of any other Roman city? This is where that little tidbit comes into play. Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And how they were treated was a big, fat no-no. And Paul knew it. And verse 38 says, The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came, and they apologized to them, and they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. (laughs) Isn't that great? With a word, they went from being prisoners to being apologized to by the very men that had them beaten and imprisoned in the first place. It seems like the jailer had to put them back in their cells, right, so as not to arouse suspicion. So I wonder a couple of things about this account. Do you think that the magistrates noticed that they had been cleaned up a bit? Last they had seen them, they were probably covered in blood and dirty, and and now their wounds are cleaned, and they look probably pretty good. We can assume that because Paul and Silas were followers of Christ, that even though they made the magistrates come and apologize, they probably graciously forgave them, which would have taken them aback a little bit, don't you think? Do you think that the other prisoners cheered as they were taken out of the prison? All of this makes me wonder if, put together, it made the magistrates and the leaders of this city a little extra eager to get rid of Paul and Silas. That's why they asked them to leave the city. It's a little too weird, all of this going on. What a mystery these two men seemed to be. Or... Perhaps it's planted a seed on how, to, how different these two men acted, even in these extreme circumstances. A seed that would eventually lead some of these men to faith in Jesus. We can only guess. And so to finish up the chapter, verse 40 says, So they went out of prison and visited Lydia, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so this answers the question where Timothy and Luke ended up. They were with Lydia. I would love to have been a fly on the wall as Paul and Silas told them the story of what happened the night before. You guys, 
that earthquake, that was us. Not really. What a celebration, though, of God's provision. What a celebration of what seemingly was a big letdown. Turning into, look what God has done. Look what God has done. And off they went, continuing on their missionary journey. Perhaps only hoping that what they had done there would take root and grow. And did it ever. And so that's the prequel for the book of Philippians. From that single inspired vision... Paul planted the first European church and developed relationships with people that he would come to call beloved. I do always wonder, though, who was the man in the vision that called Paul and company to Macedonia? Was it perhaps the jailer or one of the prisoners? Was it someone who would later come to knowledge of Jesus long after Paul and company were gone? It's never clearly stated in scripture, so it's anybody's guess, but it's always something that I've wondered about. I'll ask him someday, I guess. You know, last week we talked about how when God changes our plans, the way that he changed Paul's, do we trust him? Do we worship the way that they did? And now this week, as we, as we read the completion of this great story of faith, the question that we need to ask ourselves is are we always ready to be a witness for our Lord? Remember when Paul and company were, they were certainly preaching to the women at the place of prayer. They went there for that very purpose. He and Silas were doing nothing of the sort when they were in prison. They were simply living out their faith, right? They were being faithful in the, faith, in the face of dire circumstances. And when God did a miraculous work, and presented an opportunity for them to tell someone about Jesus, they did not hesitate. They didn't run when their bonds were loosed and the prison doors were open. They didn't stay silent when the jailer tried to kill himself. And when he asked them what he needed to do to be saved, they didn't just respond in shock or question his sincerity. We never know when God is going to put an opportunity in front of us. Right? It says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. It says always being prepared to do that. We saw that this is exactly how Paul and Silas handled themselves. Their persecutor became their brother, Because they were ready to make a defense for their faith. And they did it with respect and gentleness. So, church, the question that we have to ask ourselves today, are we prepared? Are you prepared if the person who is persecuting you all of a sudden asks you how to be saved? How about if the person who you have viewed as your enemy for the last 40 years wants to talk to you about Jesus? How about a total stranger who, in your opinion, looks like they would be the last person to ever believe in Christ? 
You know, we've been called to make disciples of all nations. And at any time, in any place, and in any situation, we could be called on the Lord to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we prepared? Let's pray together. Father, prepare our hearts. You have given us your word and your Holy Spirit to have every answer that we need. Lord, the world is full of many questions, many defensive questions to explain this or explain that or prove this or prove that. Lord, we know it's not about that. It's about you working in our lives, changing our hearts the way that you changed the jailer's heart. It's about the way that you have set us free, the way that you loosed the bonds and unlocked the prison doors of that jail in Philippi. So, Lord, we ask you this morning, for each and every one of us, help us to be prepared for those moments that we don't expect, when someone that we least suspect would come up to us and ask us how to be saved family member or friend or a total stranger, help us to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. And that hope is you, Jesus. To be ready to tell how you have changed our life. How we once were lost and now are found. We were once blind and now we see that you have set us free from our sin that we can live with you eternally because you have made us clean and washed us white as snow through your sacrifice. What a humbling thing it is to think that you use us in those ways. And so, Lord, we ask you today, God, to use us. Help us to be prepared and use us. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. And always, Lord, thank you for your word that challenges us, that encourages us, and that prepares us. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Nothing